Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is up, Nets world? We're back here on the Believe in Nets podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm your host, Eric Slater, Brooklyn Nets beat reporter for ClutchPoints.com. Going to be recording a Brooklyn Nets preseason awards prediction podcast today. Going to be joined in a second by Matt Brooks, formerly a colleague on the Nets beat and now a really talented content specialist for the Denver Nuggets. Excited to get to it after the theme music. I'm joined now by Matt Brooks, formerly of Nets Daily, now a writer and digital content specialist for the Denver Nuggets. How you doing, man? I appreciate you coming on. Good, good. It's good to be back. Talk Nets. Uh, just catch up. It's been a while, so I'm excited. Yeah, man. It's uh, It's been a whirlwind of the last, you know, six months for you. I mean, you know, just give a little people a little of the insight into what you've been doing out there with Denver, you know, coming off the Nets midway through the season there, and you step in at the perfect time. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, I mean, I think Nets fans remember last year, uh, but I don't. I'm not going to go through the whole year, but I'll, I'll kind of leave it at where I left off. Um, Kevin Durant puts in his trade request February 8th, like 1:30 a.m. Um, and then, like everybody else covering the Nets, we were like, "Well, don't know what happens next." Um, and as it turned out, within two weeks, I get offered a job with the Nuggets, doing like writing and other digital work. Um, and was out in Denver by end of March, last week of the regular season, going to the playoffs, watched him some, tried to play as much catch up as possible, but really didn't know what to expect. And then uh, started traveling with the team and lo and behold, we go all the way to the finals and win. So uh, it was surreal. Like it was the craziest three months of my life. Um, didn't get a permanent home out here until like apartment um, until like last, like I think it was uh, the fourth game of the finals so was living in airbnb living in hotels uh it, it was wild but it was really cool uh, just to experience that and um yeah it's nice to be in one spot for the start of the season because i don't want to do another mid-season trade <laughs> yeah the question that i've been wondering ever since the finals ended is do you get a championship ring yeah you do yeah, no i do <laughs> which is absurd i was oh there God, for that's amazing two months so uh yeah it's it's pretty absurd <laughs> so yeah is there gonna be a point where you're sliding the championship ring on your finger and like i'm sure there were plenty of points you're at the finals or i saw you in the locker room you're holding the trophy <laughs> you're like how the hell did i get here like how did this happen the locker room was crazy because like i don't know like as a writer you have like certain goals you're like all right i want to do interview with this player or whatever there's just certain like benchmarks you hit and the locker room was like one of those things that like, it wasn't even something I hoped to do. Like, that was just never on – I never figured I would do that. I didn't even, like, think you could do that. So, to be in there, it was, like, I wasn't expecting that. Um, and I think that made it just, like, a surreal out-of-body experience. But, uh, yeah, that was crazy. Uh, right after the uh, Game 5 ended, was in the locker room, saw the celebration. Players are in there. It was cool. Um, and that is something I will never forget. All right, well, we're going to be recording a Nets preseason awards podcast today. Got to milk the last bit of Nets content out of Matt <laughs> if possible. So we're going to be giving our picks for MVP, most improved player, player who will surprise most, player who will disappoint, disappoint most. And then we're going to round it out with over-under predictions for the wins for the regular season. So we're going to start it off with MVP prediction for this season for Brooklyn. Matt, I'm going to let you lead off. 
So like Bridges is probably the right answer. Uh, I think Nick Claxton's going to have a big year. Um, this team is, and I'm just going to like, I'll get more into this later, but this is going to be a team that ex- if they're good, they have to excel defensively. Nick Claxton's the center of that, um, you know, fell out of the defensive player of the year race for reasons. I think you actually asked him about it during media day um, for reasons that were honestly silly. Um, he, he was awesome all year long. Uh, the spotlight just have to, happened to shift away from the team in February when Durant put in the trade request. But um, yeah, I, I think this year there will be hopefully more eyes on what he's doing. And and if if they're going to be as good as I think they can be defensively, um, he's going to be the center of that. So it, it'll require like a top five defense. We'll see if they can get there. And part of that needs part of that comes down to their offense needs to be good enough so that it doesn't bleed into their defense. But if they're there, top five, he's the center of that. He'll get recognition. Yeah, I think Claxton's really interesting. Yeah, I did ask him about that at media day because I just knew from prior conversations with him how much it bothered him, and rightfully so. But I feel like once you get into the NBA media, you kind of you kind of come to realize with some of these awards how much of it is narrative-driven and tied to storylines and different things along those lines, even when there's some writers voting. So, yeah, I think – Claxton definitely, you know, he got a little bit of a raw end of the deal there once KD and Kyrie, and Kyrie left. But I'm glad that you said Claxton because, like you said, Mikhail Bridges is my answer. So I was hoping that you were going to say somebody else. But as you said, they're going to have to excel as a defensive team. But obviously, you know, like you said, also touching on later, while trying to field a, ha- a competent half-court offense. And I just think Bridges is the most high-level two-way player on this roster. He's the best shot maker. You know, he's one of the more high-level perimeter defenders in the league, in my opinion. You know, how he develops as a playmaker, how they are able to put his the ball in his hands in, situ- in situations to close the game. As general manager Sean Marks alluded to, sometimes that's going to be really huge. But, you know, Spencer Dinwiddie said it at media day that this team is really going to go as far as Mikhail Bridges and Ben Simmons take it. That was his answer. So I think that really gives you, you know, some level of understanding about what they're expecting and what the pecking order is for this team. And I think if Mikhail can build upon what he what he showed at the end of last season, it's going to go a long way towards their confidence on both end of, ends of the floor, and particularly offensively. But moving on from that into most improved player, who do you got there? Um, I this is a good one. Um, I, I I'm, I'm not going to give like any you know cute answers or anything. Um, I think Cam Thomas is like the obvious shoe in, right? Um, that seems like it makes the most sense, and it's not even because like he's necessarily going to be improved. I mean, I do think like, and I, I'll be honest, I have not been as locked in with the Nets as I probably was in, in February and before, but. Um, I, I think just based on like opportunity, he feels like the guy, um, you know, there's there. I, I almost wonder if there will be a point where he just makes that starting lineup just because they're going to need his creation. Um, and if he can just do the other little things more, I, I liked Dinwiddie a lot. I, I also think there's plenty of value having him run the bench and having cam in there. Cause there's just, there's not a lot of creation outside of Mikhail, who's a good, maybe not great creator, uh, Cam Johnson, who I'm worried gets pretty overstretched. I think you put Cam in there, and that just takes the load off those guys a little bit. Uh, load off Ben Simmons, and he just feels like the guy. Yeah, I mean, all he has to do is take mar- like make marginal improvements in his playmaking creation for others, um, and then if he can just contribute a little more defensively, uh, I think that it's sitting there for the taking, and there seems to be a little more belief in him this year. 
Yeah, it seems like you and me might have these next two flip-flops. You know, I was I was between Ben Simmons and Cam Thomas, and I think both are great answers for this one. I went with Ben Simmons just because, you know, the bar based on what we saw last season while he was playing what he described as injured is, you know, it's pretty low. So just, you know, what they can get from him defensively from that standpoint, if he's healthy with what the identity of this team and what they're going for, that should be very significant. Then offensively, you know, I'm sure you haven't been too locked in the Nets preseason games, but, you know, he's still outstanding passing the ball in transition. The Nets are going to need him to do that a ton as long as he's sharing the floor with Claxton, something that, you know, we'll talk about shortly. But then in the half court, he's already shown a little bit of a willingness to look for his own shot, you know, more so than anything we saw last year. You remember early on last season, I mean, the reluctance was glaring and the impact that it had on the offense was also so. We've seen him initiate some contact this year early. We've seen him cutting aggressively to the rim, you know, seeking out his own shot. He's even attempted a few jumpers during these games. I still think that there's another level of, you know, aggressiveness and assertiveness that we can see from him around the basket. He's still reverting, you know, that fading hook that we saw all the time last year when he's in the post. Um, You'd like to see him commit to finishing towards the rim on some of those, but you know, I think it's important to keep in mind that these are the first games that Ben's played in about eight months. So I would hope that, you know, he's only going to get more confident in terms of shooting the basketball again, you know, as long as he's healthy. And we know that, you know, his aggressiveness, his ability to put rim pressure is the key to his playmaking in the half court. And that's why some of that was so watered down last year. So, you know, he has to commit and command respect from that end. Jock Vaughn's talked about it throughout the preseason, but if he can, just based on the floor of where he's at defensively and the potential and room for improvement he has offensively, that was my answer there. And, you know, moving on to player who is going to surprise most, what'd you have there? I, I think I'm going to go Harry Giles, uh, who, okay, I like and I that. say this, I say this because the biggest thing with him has always been health, but I think, the skill is there. There, I, he's. Let's be honest. Like from what you've seen, and you could, you probably are a better eye for this and can say more to this. But that backup big position is pretty open. Um, maybe they stagger Clax and Simmons more. I'm kind of wondering if that's what happens. But um, if they do, kind of keep those guys locked together, and you still need that third big. Um, he feels like a a pretty safe option for that. It's never been about talent with him. It's really just been health. Um, and I, part of me is just rooting for this to happen, but I'd like to see him get out there. I don't, I don't think he's like, he's really skilled. He's got good touch. Um, just, you know, as, as a guy that's pretty polished and seems like he's a good fill in for that backup role. So that's the guy I'm keeping an eye on, uh, especially when I, whenever I can catch you guys on league pass, he'll be, he'll be a guy I'm watching for. So him, um, I like Watford a lot too, but I, I think there's probably a little more opportunity just based on how this team is set up for, for Giles, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting answer. And it seems like, you know, within the Nets brass, there's some real momentum in terms of, you know, they like them liking what they've seen from Giles. I mean, he had in one preseason game against uh, Maccabi Rihanna, the team from Israel, he, you know, it's, there's some NBA talent on that floor, obviously though, not the best competition, but just the touch that he's able to show around the basket, even bailed the nets out with a few fadeaway jumpers late in the shot clock, just things that, you know, when you're talking about that backup center position, the other, you know, whether or not they stagger Ben Simmons and Claxton, I think is a huge question that we'll touch on in a little bit, but Dayron Sharps, the other guy there. And it just, it doesn't seem like Dayron's skill set really 
has aligned with the way that the Nets want to play in the past. And I think that was evident last year with the glaring hole they had behind Nick Claxton at points and how bad their rebounding was. And they're still their reluctance to put him on the floor just in terms of his ability to defend in space, a little trouble, you know, catching feeds and finishing around the rim there. Just what, what are your thoughts on Dayron heading into this year? I'm just curious because, you know, it's going to be between him and Harry. And then also, you know, the Nets have had a tendency to go small ball, but it'll be interesting to see how much of that was personnel based versus the versus the philosophy they want to play. Uh, yeah, my thing with Dayron's pretty much been, and it's since he got drafted, I always felt like the development of a secondary skill is really needed yep. because rebounding is really good. Offensive rebounding, important. Is it like the most important thing for your big man? Debatable. I mean, you you want to, I like typically in the NBA, if you're not like a star level center, like a Jokic or an Embiid, I would say you'd want someone who can protect the rim and play multiple schemes. Yep. And if you can't do that, you want a guy that, especially depending on what team you have, a guy that can screen, finish around the rim, and just kind of be a hub in that way. Um, or you can play out of, you know, handoffs or something like that. Rebounding is a really cool thing. A lot of teams don't even stress offensive rebounding that much. So for him, um, being a guy that develops a second skill has is, is always been crucial for him. Um, and I think that kind of carries into this year as well. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really good point. I think something that you said is really important of a skill they look for is being able to play multiple schemes and the nets are doing a lot of, you know, they're switching up their defensive coverages a lot this year. They're going into some drop coverage. They obviously switched a lot or almost entirely last season. But the, my thing with Dayron is like you said, like rebounding is his concrete skill and it's not even necessarily defensive rebounding. It's offensive rebounding. And Jock Vaughn has been vocal about that through training camp that they want to see him sustain that effort through both ends of the floor. But it, it does seem like there's just there's a they're a little limited in terms of scheme wise, what they can play with him on both ends of the floor, what he can bring to the table, you know, running some of those DHOs, even going to the basket, just finishing or also just as a passer. So I do think that Harry Giles has a unique opportunity to come in here and make an impact if he can stay healthy, obviously, because that's been the question all along. But he has a little bit he has about two inches on Dayron, a little bit thinner, but he does have an interesting opportunity in that regard. And, you know, for me, I put my biggest surprise is Cam Thomas. And I think most people would say that, you know, it's not a surprise given they, what they saw from him last season, especially amongst Nets fans with those three plus 40 uh, point performances became the youngest player in NBA history to do that. But for me, it's not as much a surprise of, you know, his talent. It's the surprise of, I think that you're going to be, see him playing a different role than people are accustomed to in the past, you know, alongside Ben Simmons handling the ball. The Nets, Jock Vaughn has talked about it. I've written and podcasted about it. They're really hoping that him and Dimwitty can develop. Well, they've seen Dimwitty do it, but both of them develop into high level spot up shooters. He, you know, last year he shot 41% on catch and shoot threes. It was limited sample size, but he looks very comfortable doing it this year. I think he attempted five in the preseason game against Philadelphia. He made three of them. And for the first time that I can remember in Cam's Nets tenure, based on what him and Vaughn and some other people are saying, it really seems like that they're aligned on the way that they want him to play and that there's some understanding there and that he's being put in a situation where he's not thrown out there with, you know, the Nets C squad and they're just looking at him to create and do all these things. They're actually putting him within a system and putting him in a role alongside Simmons when he, where he can try to develop into that, uh, that high level catch and shoot threat while also, like you said, bringing that shot creation, bringing that in transition late in the shot clock, bailing them out of some situations, which they're going to need plenty with Simmons and Claxton on the floor. So 
I think that I think Cam is going to have a sizable role this season, and I think it might be different than what Nets fans are accustomed to in the past. But I'm confident that he can be, you know, productive in that role. And I we're going to have to touch on this eventually, so I think we should just touch on it now. What are your thoughts on the Ben Simmons, Nick Claxton sharing the floor? You know, obviously that was a huge question early on last season. We saw Coach Vaughn go away from it. I think after two games of stepping in on head coach, he bailed on it real quickly. But he's been committed to it. So much so that they've said that they haven't even put any sets in for Mikhail Bridges yet, which I think alarmed some Nets fans yesterday. I, I yeah. put that quote out. But just what are your thoughts overall? I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it more as we answer some of these questions. That quote isn't that big of a deal. They're going to do the same. They're going to run, yeah, pin, down. But, they're going to run pin down stuff. They're yeah. going to have him like run pick. It's it's the NBA where like they're going to run Chicago for him. I don't know. People, they know how they're going to play with Bridges. We saw yeah. it literally all they did was took Mighty Williams playbook and just ran that. For, had him crawling around to the for, elbow. Yeah, like down. just yeah, give him like, elbow screens. Yeah. So I don't know. I didn't think that was that big of a deal, Uh, but it's Twitter. That's how it is. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so I, you have a question about disappointments, right? That's on this. Yeah, on that's this actually, that's the next question. And, you know, it, it, I had a player who can disappoint, but biggest disappointment, you know, I think we're aligned on how we feel about this. So the floor is yours. Yeah, I think inadvertently it's really going to hurt Ben's production. And, and I don't, it doesn't, it's weird because like physically he does look better, like completely. And, and from what I've seen in preseason, the numbers aren't all that different. It's preseason, whatever. But the biggest thing for me is just I've never liked that front court of Claxton and Simmons. I think there's always going to be spacing concerns. And you can sit there and be like, well, if we put three 40 point, you know, or 40% three point shooter on them, the spacing should be better. It's going to be better that way. And it's like, yes, but like if you have Ben Simmons driving to the cup and you have uh, Nick Claxton sitting in the dunker, you yeah. can defend both of those guys with one defender. So you can put two 80% three-point shooters on the perimeter. It doesn't matter because you take one perimeter or one defender and shift him over in the basket and you have two guys effectively guarded. So, yeah, um, you know, and it's it's funny. Like it, in Philly, we saw very similar problems with um, Embiid and Simmons. And Embiid turned into a stretch big in large part because they had to fit that around Simmons. And that's just not the case. Like, Nick's really a strong finisher around the rim, uh, excellent lob threat, developed a little back-to-the-basket game, starting to get some nice little, I guess, counters out of dribble handoffs. But he's just not a, a shooter. So I, I think I've never been a believer of that front court. I, and I think you look at Ben and, uh, look, there's – I mean, I'm going to say there's a lot of buzz right now for Ben, but there's definitely some optimism – and I, I, I get that. I, I do. I think that physically he looks great. I also worry a little bit because I don't want that optimism to turn directly into disappointment because of something he can't control, which is this is just not a very good front court for his optimization. Um, and the best version of Ben Simmons is surrounded uh, in, you know, five out spacing or, or four, one in four out spacing. Yeah. No, I, we feel the same way about that. I'm, you know, I'm not a believer in this system. And frankly, I'm, I don't know if I'm surprised, but I'm a, I'm a tad surprised by how much JV is committed to it with how he's spoken about it this preseason. And I understand it. Like the personnel moves that they made this offseason were hinting towards this, that they're going in on length, they're going in on athleticism. They're really, you know, trying to, I think they're of the mindset that they can, they can be 
decent enough on offense with this look and really just take advantage of getting steals on defense, grabbing, going off rebounds and really just pushing the pace that way. But I described this on my last pod when I was talking about what we saw in the Philly game, because they had 27 turnovers in that preseason game. Ben had eight of them and the offense to start just, I don't think it could look more disjointed and granted Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson didn't play, which is a huge deal, but you're the pace that they have to play with, which takes a lot of energy in itself is one part of this. And then when they get in the half court, as you said, they can't really as much have Nick in that dunker spot or those guys standing around like the level of activity that it takes from both of them off the ball and the commitment just collectively is really intense. And it's something that I don't think people are used to, you know, in the modern NBA with where it's a lot of pace and space, but I just, I think that there's going to be a lot of issues with how they try to go about it in the half court. And I think it's going to take a while for a lot of guys to get used to, you know, maybe like a Cam Thomas and a Spencer Dimwitty, like some of those guys. So I totally get where you're coming from there. I've always thought that it's a self-imposed handicap, but they're looking at it as we have Ben, we have Nick, you know, I think they're two of their best players they're thinking, and they want to have them on the floor at the same time. So I understand it. But one of my top questions heading into the season is we know how JV felt last year. Obviously, KD and Kyrie, they were there, so expect expectations were different. But how long does he stay committed to this if that half-court offense really starts to stall and if maybe Ben's confidence and his numbers start to suffer? So, you know, that's really what I'm curious about. My, you know, I have this framed as biggest player who I think is going to disappoint. And for me, I had Dennis Smith Jr. in here just because there's been a lot of hype around uh, DSJ heading into this season because of what the Nets have said about him being a priority in free agency and some other things. But this kind of aligns with what we just talked about. And, you know, offensively, you know, he's one of the better point of attack defenders in the league last season. And he brings a lot of energy and juice that way. But, you know, basically another non-shooter, he's 22% from three on one and a half attempts per game over his last two seasons. And with a rotation featuring Simmons, Claxton, Dayron Sharp, you know, potentially or Giles, I'm just not sure they have much more room for that. I'm not sure where he fits in. And I get it. Like I said, like they're aware that they're not going to be a high level half court team. So they're clearly investing in that length of athleticism. They're hoping they can use that to aid the offense. But, you know, even just outside of Ben Simmons handling the ball in the half court offense, you have Bridges is going to need to get his touches. You have Dimwitty and Thomas who, you know, both should have the ball in their hands, at least some. And they just rewarded Cam Johnson with a four-year, $95 million contract. I don't think they think he's going to be like this high usage guy, but probably going to want to at least get him some touches and see if he can expand his game a little. So where is DSJ in this half-court offense? What is his role there? Where does he fit into the rotation? I'm not sure. Do you have any thoughts there? Uh, Tough team for him to play on just offensively. Um, Love the screen navigation. Love what he's able to do as a defender. Love that he's improved that aspect of his really committed to Um, spoken about it a lot it's super cool super cool um and that was not something that he uh you know obviously was drafted for so um i love when guys do that when guys reinvent their games um but i i this team is tough because you have to you have a front court that's let's be honest like maybe spacing the floor from seven feet out if you want to count the little simmons fadeaway jump hooks um and, and I think that's just really hard if your shot profile on offense is near the rim when you have these two guys that kind of live there. They're hanging out in the dunker spots. So, yeah, I, I worry about that a little bit for him. Um, and, and I think, yeah, it, I mean, he's going to have to make his money on this team as, as a defender. Offensively, it's going to be leak outs. It's going to be cutting opportunities. But, again, how much are you getting those if you have 
one or two of these guys that are kind of hanging on the dunkers. So I think that's a good take. Um, I, I just don't really I, like, I don't have a ton of expectations for him, period. Um, but that's also me not covering the team anymore. So I, I might be missing that side of things. But I, I think when I saw him sign there, I was really excited for him to get the opportunity because I like him a lot. But I also looked at that signing and was like, I don't know if this is like the perfect team construct for him and just how he how he excels as a player. Were you surprised that they went with him over Edmund Sumner? And Sumner actually ended up in Charlotte. So they did a little swap there. But I think that was that was something that, you know, maybe some people were curious about. My take on it was that they might not. But at the end of the day, like these are minimal signings, but they might not have believed in Sumner's spacing and jump shot. So they're getting a little bit more in terms of physicality, rim pressure from uh, DSJ. Did that surprise you at all? You saw Edmund play a little bit last year. Uh, it could be. I mean, they're pretty similar player. You also never know like what the conversations are like behind the scenes. Like it could literally be like, Hey, we don't have a huge role for you. And that's not like a bad thing. Like if anything, I think players appreciate that if they're like, all right, you know, the front office and I don't know, I'm just really speculating. Um, but it could be something like that. It, it might not be necessarily. They're looking at like his catch and shoot numbers and being like, well, we don't know if this is, if we can extrapolate this. It literally might be like we had a human conversation and, you know, this guy is feeling like he's not going to get a huge opportunity here. So Charlotte's a better option for him. It, it it's, could be a multitude of factors. I look at both of them and how they play, though, and I think they're pretty similar. Um, it's not a one-for-one one swap because they do have different skills, but in a vacuum, I think you're largely getting the same sorts of things from them. Screen navigation, ability to get out and transition, speed, uh, shot profile that skews more towards the rim. So it's the same general ish uh, archetype. Yeah. And, and, and something I also wanted to touch on, I think I, you know, I, I spoke at length about bridges earlier and then spoke about the Simmons Claxton and both of our feelings on that, but we spoke, you know, you touched on that front court and how it could, you're worried it could impact Ben. Do you have any worries about how it could impact Mikhail and just the amount that Ben, you know, is going to have the ball in his hand just to, you know, just to because when they both don't have the ball, it becomes very difficult from a spacing standpoint for the rest of the guys. And I wonder about Mikhail and what he's going to be doing this year, how much of an impact that could have on him. Yeah. Um, Mikhail actually is another one I'm kind of watching for just because it just felt like there was no tape on him last year. Um, so I always look at like, and he might, I, he's a really good scorer. Like he can shoot over anybody. I don't need to tell Nets fans that, but uh, I, I will say like, I do think there's probably a little more film on him. So I always look at that and wonder, all right, like how does that affect things? Does that change his ability to get shots off? He's working in a pretty limited uh, front court, just in, or the front court may limit some of his touches or, you know, areas that he can get shots off in. Um and also, you're right, you do have the Ben thing where you need to give him his touches. So, yeah, he's another one I'm watching for. I, I didn't feel bold enough to be like, he's going to be a disappointment because I think he's going to be really good. Yeah. Um, you might, you might have like some, if, some fans coming out your head if that was your take. Yeah, there. which, I, dude, I'm not even watching you guys. This is the way yeah. I was. So I don't feel good enough about saying that. But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, like if he ends up having like a year, I don't want to call it a down year, but a year that maybe isn't as good as those last couple of months, I wouldn't be that shocked because – there's just more tape on him. There's the Philly series that people can go off of or scouts can go off of. Um, and, and again, like it is kind of a, a strange team in terms of how it's constructed. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that I've also thought about. You said a down year. I mean, Mikhail was over 27 points a game on 50, 40, 90 yeah. after he stepped in last year. So 
you know, he's a great shooter, but there's also like, he was on, he was on a real tear and on real hot streak in terms of shooting. And then you add in some of this other stuff where, you know, I have no, I have no worries that he's going to have a bad year, but a down year, if it's a little bit worse than 27 on 50, 40, 90, I mean, I think the expectations they've shot up a lot for McHale and I'm really interested to see, you know, just how his usage is impacted by this Ben and Nick front court and how much of a priority, you know, if that starts to be an issue, how much of a priority goes into that. So I think that'll be yeah. a monitor going forward. Yeah, down year, down year would be like 24 points on yeah. like 44% exactly. field goal, 38 from three. Like I'm not saying he's going to be like unplayable. I just think if the expectations are here, would I be like completely shocked if it's like one step below that? I mean, it's kind of put up really good numbers. It's hard to replicate that. The it's it's also interesting because the next step in his development, and I think a lot of people, you know, said this after last season, was that he really didn't have the ball in his hands much in crunch time. That you know, in that stretch to close the year, I think Dinwiddie Dinwiddie took the overwhelming majority of the shots and had the ball more. And I think that was just linked to the coach's trust in him as a playmaker and reading defenses and more experienced with that. And that was the number one area that, you know, people want to see Mikhail maybe take a jump is his playmaking, his ability to have the ball be a closer. Sean Marks touched on that in his exit interview briefly said he wouldn't limit in there. But, you know, as I just said, with, you know, Ben having the ball with the way that this team is constructed, I'm just not sure how much room he's going to have to grow as a playmaker and just have natural reads and progressions and progressions in this half court offense based on it just being, you know, not a typical setup. We'll put it that way. But last thing we're going to round the show out with nets over under is set at 37 and a half wins. What do you got over or under? Under. Um, and under. I, I'm, okay. I know that I'm, yeah, I'm under, uh, I'm like the only person who's under. He, so here's my thing. I don't, I really don't... Under. I, I, I've really? heard some unders recently yeah. in some preview pods. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm under and I want to preface this. I really like the off season. Like I really like the idea of just taking chances on guys and like seeing if any of them pop. I think that's the perfect thing to do when you're transitioning, which is really what the nets are doing right now. Um, now, I will say this. I've I've expressed I don't love the front court in terms of I think it can be a little limiting in terms of what you're doing offensively, and that puts a lot of pressure on your defense. They're already changing schemes. If their offense isn't good, that bleeds into your transition defense. You're just going to be defending a lot if your offense isn't good, and I'm pretty concerned about the offense. Um, and I, I think that's kind of what this comes down to is they're in a really tricky spot where – they have to start Nick and Ben, which, of course, I mean, those are two guys that are really important, both in terms of how much you're financially tied to those guys, but also because they're important pieces for whatever you, wherever you go next, whether you're keeping them on the roster, not keeping them on the roster. You need to play them both. Like, you can't move one of them to the bench like they were doing with Ben last year. Um, and I just don't – I don't know what that does to your ceiling. Um, and, I, I like, I think the Nets, like, honestly – when I was kind of getting ready for this pod, they might be one of the most high variance teams in the league for me where I'm like, if everything clicks, the signings work well, the spacing works around those guys. They figure out certain plays. Maybe they have to run a little bit more motion and movement in their half court. Um, it could really hit. And this is a team that's like a feisty top five seed. If it doesn't hit, this is a team that doesn't have an offensive identity. They're in the bottom five in terms of half court offense. And it's just such a slog to score and I sort of lean more that way just because there are so many things that need to go well. Like, I, for example, like I'm obviously covering the Nuggets now. Um, if if a set butters out, 
they can just go right to Jokic Murray two man game. I don't know what that looks like for the Nets. That concerns me a little bit. And, you know, it just puts a lot of pressure on guys like Mikael Bridges, who's really, really good, really, really good player. Is he a guy that can just completely bail out a position, you know, a possession like somebody like a Jokic or a Durant in those first two years of Nets basketball? I don't know. I don't know if that's what, what you, you know, what you can live on. So, um, yeah, I think in the end, I'm probably a little bit lower on the Nets, but they're really, really hard for me to figure out and, and put an exact number on just because, again, they're so high variance. But I think I settle in on being under because of how many questions I have. Yeah. Now, I was teetering you know, over under. I went over, and I'm glad I did just to introduce a different point of view. And, you know, I think this team, everybody, I think, and a lot of media people are talking about this team having a defensive identity. Like, they're going to be one of the better defensive teams in the league. And I think that they can definitely get there based on the personnel they have. I would caution early in the season, though. Like you said, they're introducing – a bunch of new screen, uh, new schemes, which is something I talked to Ben about in the past few days. It hasn't looked great. And they just have a lot of guys coming in from different situations. So, you know, defense, you know, we all know it takes a lot of continuity. It takes a lot of time to understand positioning and schemes and what the other guys on your floor, you know, where they're going to be. So I think it might look significantly worse coming out of the gate than people um, account for. And that's not even factoring in what you said about their potential half court woes, you know, leaking into the uh, half court offensive struggles, leaking into the defensive end. But for the over, I would say they were 12 and 15 last year after they traded Katie and Kyrie. That's around a 36 win pace. 18 of those 27 games were against playoff teams. And that was without Ben Simmons. So if he's healthy and if he can provide something, and I'm really curious if that half court offense really is struggling. I don't think they bench one of them, but how much do they really go to like trying to stagger those guys as much as they can early in the game? What do those closing lineups look like? I feel like will be really interesting because there may be times offensively where they have to close with one of those guys off the floor. Who is it? You know, like that's going to be a pretty interesting storyline. And it's really going to depend, you know, like I said, on like a lot of different factors, the team's defense, they're going to have a starting unit with two of the like most versatile seven footers in the league. You have an elite perimeter defender next to them and Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson can hold his own, you know, then has a size DFS Royce O'Neal off the bench. So, you know, if they can build that top 10 defensive team, I think they have a high floor this year, just based on, you know, the effort that they're going to play with. I think they also have no incentive to lose. So, it's going to be really interesting in that regard. I'll go over. I actually had a friend who was into gambling text me yesterday and was like, you know, the Nets are like five, like 50 or something crazy, like to one to be the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. And like, this is like three points above valued market expectation. And I'm not like into gambling like that. So I was yeah. like. I was like, I, I don't agree with that. And he sent me this whole thesis that he made about like why, because he he writes for Action Network and like why yeah. it was a good thing. And I, I actually sent back to him and I was like, I don't think it's going to happen, but I think that an interesting case for that and just for the over in general is that they have all these picks and if they somehow did make a move at the deadline, like I don't yeah. think they're going to, but like that's a variable that could be introduced to this over under conversation that I think a lot of people might not think of. And, you know, People be just become disgruntled. Things happen. I don't think it's going to happen, but it's certainly not out of the realm of possibilities. But um, but yeah, that that you know about does it for our Nets talk today. Any Nuggets thoughts, man? You know, over under there is pretty high. Obviously, I think they're still even maybe getting overlooked a little bit after winning the yeah. title last year. So, just brief thoughts on them. Um, no, 
what the starting five is. Uh, I'm excited for this year, and I've you know I've talked about this in a couple of different places, but the Nuggets are like a really interesting championship team in that they're running it back, but they have like five first or second year players that are feasibly fighting for rotation spots, and that's just really unusual. Like when you think of like freshman sophomore players fighting for spots, you're thinking, okay. I'm watching the Detroit Pistons who have been in the lottery the last couple of years or whatever, like some team that's young and rebuilding. That's not really the nuggets, how that comes together. We'll see. But for me, like I'm, I mean, shoot, I like already during preseason, I'm clipping way more than I thought I would. Uh, and a lot of it's just like, well, look at what Julian Strother can do coming off, you know, a pin down into uh, you know, a three pointer from 28 feet out where he's leaning one direction. Like there's just a lot of that. And that's stuff that I this did not you just don't see that it's pretty unusual to see a championship team a team that's won um have so many young players that you don't really know what you're going to get from them but that's kind of what makes it exciting like that's why that's why teams can sell rebuilds is because there's like that mystery box factor in young players so the nuggets have that so i yeah i mean if you're uh, let's say and i shoot i did this and i was covering the nets if if it's you know, an early game, 7 p.m. game, Nets finish up, and you're like, hey, the Nuggets are playing, and you wanted to watch that, that's what I would watch for, see all the young players. Obviously, Jokic is sensational, but um, it's it's kind of fun. So that's what I'll be keeping an eye on the uh, first couple months. All right, sounds good, man. You know, if you guys haven't seen any of Matt's work that he's doing with the Nuggets, I highly encourage you to go check it out. Really awesome film studies, some video breakdowns, in-depth articles from stuff he's getting from players. It's really cool there. Looking forward to what you do throughout this year. Hopefully you guys make another deep run. I can get as much content out of you as possible. I appreciate you for coming on, man. Likewise. Can't wait to see what you do this year. That does it for this episode of Believe in Nets on the Believe Podcast Network, your one-stop shop for everything happening across the sports and entertainment world. Hope you guys enjoyed the pod. Got some nice insight from both me and Matt about what to expect from Brooklyn this year. I am Eric Slater, Brooklyn Nets beat reporter for clutchpoints.com. You can find all of my work on Twitter at Eric Slater underscore. Also all of my articles on clutchpoints.com. Make you guys make sure you guys smash the like and subscribe button on YouTube at Believe in Nets. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts. Have more episodes coming up with opening night approaching. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.